Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Rivka Green. Rivka is a doctoral student at York University, and she's studying clinical neuropsychology um, in Toronto. And the way in which I got in contact with Rivka is I did a little presentation uh, about a month ago on fluoride. And I came across some papers that I found really interesting. And I saw that Rivka was an author and I thought I have to get in contact with this lady and see what she's about. And we met up last week and had a bit of a conversation and I was really impressed by the work that you've been doing Rivka. So yeah, I just uh, am really excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much for coming along. Well, thank you so much for reaching out. It was great to hear from you and to chat last week. Yeah, it was great. And this is probably a topic that's close to many people's hearts who are listening right now. We have many integrative healthcare practitioners, naturopaths, nutritionists, integrative medical doctors, so on and so forth. And I'd say they probably are aware of some of the... Uh, current information around fluoride but i want to hear it straight from the horse's mouth because you've done (laughs) (laughs) you've done some pretty interesting research into it so did you want to give a little bit of background about what you do how you got into this field and um, maybe even just start talking about some of the background on fluoride and what you found yeah, well, that could take, you know, weeks or months, but I'll try to keep it concise. And um, so, yeah, so thanks so much for having me on. Um, I'm studying, as you mentioned, to be a clinical neuropsychologist. So my time is split between clinical work and research work. And my clinical work is in conducting neuropsychological assessments for children and youth who have sustained brain injuries. Um, and then my other half of the time, I'm doing research in the field of environmental health. Um, specifically with a focus of um, the impact of toxic chemicals on brain development, uh, specifically the uh, prenatal window and early infancy window are, are um, er- areas that I'm interested in. And so far, as you mentioned, my graduate work has been on the impact of early life exposure to fluoride on brain development. So I've been researching that for about, uh, I think it's like six years now. Um, what first got me interested is I was actually pregnant in back in 2015. And when I was looking at the literature about what to avoid and, and how to ensure my pregnancy went as well as possible, um, it, it became clear that there were just not as much evidence-based research as I would have thought um, somebody who was early in my career, which led me to Dr. Christine Till's lab in York University in Toronto, where she was studying early life exposure to toxic chemicals on brain development, which was something I was interested in my personal life as well as in my academic life. Um, And she had just received a grant to look at early life fluoride exposure um, among pregnant women living in Canada. 
And I guess I'll back up a little as to why she was so interested to pursue that funding. Um, I don't know how many people know the history of, of, of fluoride and water fluoridation, but I'll, I'll just go over it really briefly just because it helps kind of um, understand why the question was so important to us. But um, back in the 30s and 40s, scientists found fewer cavities in children who were drinking water that was high in fluoride. So that was just by observing children who had high levels of fluoride in their water. And in 1945, scientists began to study the protective effects of adding fluoride to drinking water. And it was found that there was a range of about 0.7 to 1.2 parts per million, which was shown to have a protective effect um, against tooth decay. And even before the early trials were completed, in 1950, the American Dental Association, the American Public Health Association, and many other major health organizations endorsed water fluoridation. And since then, since water fluoridation began, the rates of cavities did decline. Um, but what we were seeing as you know, we got to the 70s is that rates of decline happen in fluoridated countries as well as non-fluoridated countries. And we're still not sure exactly why, but fluoridated toothpaste could be a major contributor because back in the 30s and 40s, there wasn't fluoridated toothpaste. And then when we realized fluoride was good for your teeth, toothpaste began being fluoridated. So people, even without water fluoridation, were able to get that benefit from the topical effect. So what's the debate? The debate is basically when people started also, when fluoride was added to the water, they started looking, okay, well, what about the safety effects? Those trials hadn't been done. Um, so people began investigating the safety of water fluoridation. And, um, you know, it's, it's, if you open the CDC page or any of these major health organizations, it will say water fluoridation is both safe and effective. But when um, my supervisor, Dr. Till, was looking um, specifically about the safety in vulnerable populations like pregnant women and babies, which are things that our lab is interested in, we did not find any studies on pregnant women who would be exposed to levels typical for fluoridation. So about 0.7, like I said before, there were no studies. And the more we looked into it, we saw that even major scientific panels were, were, were saying, were urging that there were still critical questions to be answered about the safety of water fluoridation. So she was interested and, and I became interested as well, you know, either one way or the other, the question was so important, whether it was safe for pregnant women to be consuming um, that level. So regardless of what we found, we knew that it was an important question to be asked. Yeah, I think that's a great introduction into the topic. <laughs> and it's it's interesting when you say they add the fluoride into the water first and then they think about doing the safety studies after as an afterthought. I find that very interesting. Yeah. At the beginning, the safety studies were mostly about dental fluorosis. It's the staining or modeling of teeth when you have too much fluoride early in development. And they were seeing that at higher levels. Um, that was happening. So then they lowered the range, um, but that was what they were doing the safety trials on and not other things. Mm. Yeah. And you've obviously done a little bit of investigation into that, which I'd like <laughs> to talk to you about, but I'd also like to firstly ask, where does fluoride come from? Like, is it naturally occurring in the water supply? Uh, and then with say countries like Australia, we had quite a lot of the capital cities here 
fluoridating their water supply. So are they adding in like natural fluoride that they get from like a natural source somewhere or where does it actually come from? So there are some water supplies that have naturally occurring levels of fluoride. And these are areas like that endemic fluorosis happens. And that can happen in areas in China as well as India. Um, Certain places like America and Australia add the fluoride to the water and they get it from, it's called hydrofluorosilicic acid. And it's a liquid byproduct of from the phosphate fertilizer companies. so it's, they're not adding sodium fluoride, they're adding hydrofluorosilicic acid. Yeah, which many people probably aren't aware of. It's something I wasn't aware of. Yeah, and I, I wasn't even really aware of that either until maybe six months ago. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my goodness. It's uh, incredible where this stuff actually comes from. Because I think a lot of people are under the impression that it is just a naturally occurring thing an element mm-hmm. that, that was getting out was, of the ground. Yeah. So in the thirties and forties, it was naturally occurring where, where it was. And then when they saw the, the therapeutic effect, then they started adding in other areas, but it is important to note that only about 5% of people worldwide drink artificially fluoridated water. So only 25 countries currently have water fluoridation programs. And of those 11, um, only 20% or less of their country is receiving fluoridated water. So in Canada, for example, about a third receives fluoridated water and two thirds have no fluoride or naturally occurring, which is closer to like 0.1.2. And many countries in Europe don't do it either. So I think some originally did start doing it and then they stopped doing it. Did they stopped doing it? Didn't they? Yeah. So, so some, some did do it. And then, um, some countries have said that it's could be considered like archaic to put like a mass medication into the water supply. So some European countries have stopped. Also, there are other ways to get the therapeutic effect of fluoride now. We know that, you know, it's almost unanimously agreed upon that the primary source of the therapeutic effect comes from topical. So that means like toothpaste, when you put it on your teeth, you rub it, that's a topical exposure, as opposed to a systemic exposure, which is ingesting, which is what happens with water fluoridation. And you mentioned earlier that the CDC said that fluoride was safe and effective. So in your opinion, how accurate was that statement then? And how accurate is that statement now? Yeah, so that's, you know, that's the million dollar question, right? And so there's two parts to that question. One is the safety and one is the efficacy. So we spoke about the efficacy a little bit earlier, um, where at the beginning when fluoridation was first introduced, we saw a major efficacious effect because it was basically the only source of fluoride exposure. Now we're actually seeing less of an effectiveness from water fluoride itself as there are other sources of fluoride in the environment. So the major beneficial effective part from water fluoridation is going down. The second part was about the safety. And when we, my research specifically is looking at pregnant women and is looking at vulnerable populations when the brain is developing. So we know during the prenatal period, we are being safer, right? There's zero tolerance, zero limit for alcohol, for example. Um, we're, we're, we take caution because we know that the placenta is not a barrier and the fetus can be exposed to, to almost everything that the mother is exposed to. So that is why, you know, I'm 
I'm particularly, we were particularly curious about this period. And when we looked at the research back in, I guess it was like 2015, 2016, there were no pregnancy studies out there that looked at safety. Since then, so now we're in 2021, there have been about four birth cohort studies, so studies that looked at pregnant women and their children exposed to levels typical for water fluoridation. So I said that about that 0.7 range, and all four have found adverse effects. So higher levels of fluoride associated with lowered IQ scores in the offspring. So right now there's about four studies showing an adverse effect and no studies showing a safe effect. It's really quite alarming to me that this information's out there. There's like the weight of the evidence is currently on it potentially being unsafe, yet mm -hmm. that conversation isn't really being had. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit later as to some yeah. of the reasons why that's happening. But you've done you've done some research you're a part of a group of doctors and dentists and scientists and various other um, professionals who investigated the effects of fluoride in pregnant women and the, mm -hmm. the, the neuropsychological effects on their offspring which I, I think is very important and very interesting because if something happens, obviously in utero and entering um, those critical, crucial years of development, there are effects that have, can be very hard to undo and effects that will probably be lifelong lasting. So do you want to talk a little bit about the research that you published um, and, and the people that you worked with and sort of what their expertise was and why those studies that you did were so important? Yeah, for sure. So we knew going into it that this would be a highly controversial study. Um, so we did assemble a team of interdisciplinary experts to be part of our team because we knew we needed, you know, the best team to conduct this research. So we had a dental researcher, we had an epidemiologist, a medical doctor, myself and my supervisor who were neuropsychologists. Um, um, and statisticians, of course, biostatisticians. And we assembled this team and when my supervisor received the funding in 2016, we were got applied to the biobank in Canada to get access to that to the biospecimens as well as the data and we were, um, we went through a lengthy application process and were able to to get the, the, re, the data. Um, so. MyRec is the birth cohort and they have they studied about 2000 women between 2008 to 2011. Um, from 10 cities across Canada. It wasn't set up this way, but interesting, um, about seven cities added fluoride to their water and three did not. So it's like as good as you can get to a randomized control trial because half of the women were drinking fluoridated water and half were not. Um, and our first study looked at uh, in about 1500 women, levels of fluoride in the urine of these women um, from each trimester of pregnancy and averaged across pregnancy. And our first study found that the levels of fluoride in the urine of women living in fluoridated cities was about twice that of women living in non-fluoridated cities. And that's something you would expect because that's the major source of fluoride. And then our second study was to test whether higher levels of 
fluoride exposure in the urine as well as fluoride exposure in the water because we did have the levels from each woman's home address of fluoride that was added to their tap water was associated with lower IQ scores in the children. So we had three predictors. We had the maternal urinary fluoride, which is the three spot samples averaged across pregnancy as well as water found, uh, fluoride, sorry, found in the water specific to each person's residence, as well as maternal fluoride intake. And that was estimated based on how much water a woman would drink or how much um, tea she would drink since we know tea is also a major source of fluoride. And across all three predictors, we found that higher fluoride was associated with lowered IQ scores in the children. For the maternal urinary fluoride, we found that effect only in boys and not girls. And the other two predictors, we found the effect in both girls and boys. Um, and specifically, if you wanna know, like that we, we looked at one milligram per liter of fluoride and its association with a lowered IQ score was about four and a half points. And to put one milligram per liter or one part per million into into context, that represents the, the 86th percentile for a woman living in a fluoridated region. So about 14% of Canadian women in fluoridated regions would have one milligram per liter of fluoride in their urine or higher. So that's roughly hundreds of thousands of women annually in, in the US and Canada. How did you... Um assess the IQ in the children? How was that done? Yeah, so IQ was done with a standardized measure, the WIPSI, so that's a Weschler um, um, scale of IQ scores for preschool children. So between the ages of three to four, they underwent a standardized IQ assessment by trained psychometrists. Um, and that was done at the, at the child's home. Yeah, interesting. So I'm guessing when you found this or these out, you arrived at these outcomes and these results, you were probably a little bit surprised because I'm not sure if you went in. Oh, we were shocked. We were shocked. I still remember where I was and, you know, where our biostatistician, you know, ran the first models, of course, because he's someone from Cincinnati. He had been in the fields, so I don't know, decades. He did, you know, early lead research with one of our other investigators, Dr. Bruce Lanfear. So they've done several dozen environmental studies before is, you know, considered experts. Um, and, you know, we were shocked. We were not expecting it at all. We were not expecting to see this large of an effect. I mean, it was very surprising. And sort of no matter any which way you looked at it, it was there. That yes, effect was there. It was it? there. Yeah, yeah, it was there. Um, several people looked at it on our team because we had a biostatistician. We had an in-house statistician out of York. I looked at it and then we even hired an independent statistical consultant to rerun the models, looking at hierarchical models, um, taking in other covariates, just every which way. And we presented all that data in the paper as sensitivity analyses, um, you know, adding in other toxicants, um, removing outliers, for example, like two IQ scores that were in the 50s, which is considered very low. Um, yeah, we tried it every which way. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And, and it is concerning because anything that affects the nervous system, the neurological function, we know that 
that system is very slow to respond or regenerate or heal. So do you know why fluoride was actually having this effect on IQ or is that something that you didn't really investigate or have you got hypotheses? Well, the mechanism, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great question, one that we get asked a lot. So at high levels of fluoride exposure, we do know more about its interruption with various neurotransmitters, its accumulation in various brain structures. And that's done from studies in high, as I mentioned earlier, high endemic fluorosis areas, like in China, where they saw aborted tissue and they were able to look at where fluoride was in the fetal brain, as well as in experimental, so rodent studies, and they were able to see those effects. At lower levels, it is less understood. Um, some of my colleagues have published studies on fluoride and its interference with thyroid function. So if it is interfering with thyroid in the mother, then we know that, you know, even subclinical hypothyroidism could have adverse cognitive effects um, for the baby since the fetus is totally dependent on thyroid hormone from the mother. So we're thinking that could be one mechanism. Um, it could be contributing to lower gestational age or weight and that be, be a cause. Um, it's still, it is less understood, but um, our team was awarded um, another grant to look at thyroid specifically. So we are right now collecting all the thyroid hormone from um, the mothers in the Myrick cohort, which I mentioned earlier. So we will be able to answer that question. Yeah. And it is interesting. Like when you look at the yeah. sort of biochemistry of how that would work, uh, it does seem that fluoride accumulates in and around the thyroid tissue. And because the structure is fairly, it's a, it's a halide, it's fairly similar to iodine in its structure. Yeah. Um, yes. I wonder if fluoride is going to affect thyroid function more in people who may have things like iodine deficiency, for example, I'm not sure if yes. you're looking at anything like that well, in research? I don't know if you, if you read one of my colleagues studies, Dr. Malland, um, she did a study in Canadian women on those that were iodine deficient um, and those they were affected more poorly by fluoride as opposed to, and, and iodine, I didn't know this when I was reading her work, iodine deficiency is actually quite common. Yeah, I can't remember the exact percentage. Maybe you know, but it was it was very surprising. It's it was common in Australia. I think around two thousand and seven, there was a big study done by the Australian Department of Health, and they looked at iodine levels across Australia. And some of the major states had a fairly significant level of iodine deficiency. So much so that they had to start mandating the. Um, biofortification of iodine in a lot of i think it was bread and salt uh, is okay. where they required people to add it but it, it sort of makes sense as to why we may be seeing so much i guess we're sort of speculating now but um, it would make sense as to the reason why we're seeing a lot of thyroid issues because well a lot of our water fluor our water sources were fluoridated around 2007 not so many now um, but you know, combine that with iodine deficiency, it would make sense yeah. that there's thyroid dysfunction happening in people, which is incredible. Yeah. And part of our research aims is to investigate the relationship with iodine. So we, we already have all the iodine values. Um, so we will be able to look at the intricacies between the fluoride thyroid iodine relationship.
and kind of unpack that. But it's true that thyroid disorders are on the rise. And in the gestational period, it is concerning. Well, that's like the critical time, isn't it? When you need the iodine, it's, it's super critical. So that research that you published, you said like you were absolutely shocked and I probably would have been too, like to find that when you're certainly not looking for it or expecting it. So here you are, like, like a group of researchers who have found a really important finding. And I don't know, what was your reaction? Was it like, oh my God, we need to tell people about this because we've identified something that could be harmful to millions of people around the world. We need to do something yeah. about this. Um, what, well, what? Sorry, go on. No, no, no. I mean, that was my reaction and maybe I was naive, but my reaction was, oh my God, like we need to publish this. We need to do something about this. You know, um, I can't believe I'm sitting on this. Like it was just, it was very, it was just such a strange feeling. And I, I guess I assumed naively that it would be embraced and it would, you know, reignite the debate in a way to place more emphasis on safety studies. Um, but first to get our paper published wasn't simple. Um, in order to even apply to a journal for publication, we needed permission from the biobank. So I, I spoke about the application process to the biobank is there, it's, it's difficult to even obtain the data and then we needed permission. And it was sent to four independent reviewers from Health Canada who produced about 200 critiques um, and we responded to those. Then we wanted it to be published in a medical journal. Um, and we were rejected without even peer review from three medical top journals who said that it was of low research relevance. So they didn't even send it to peer review. Um, in March, 2019, um, JAMA Pediatrics um, accepted our paper with revisions. And they, after going through several rounds of peer review, we'd had to do an additional round of review by the editors and a statistical team there. Um, so that whole process took over a year, um, even though pretty much all my time was dedicated to getting this paper published and responding to critiques. Um, when we did get it published, finally, August 2019, so almost two years ago, which is crazy, it feels like yesterday. Um, you know, we were, we, we were working with um, Science Communication Network on what to expect. So they, they kind of prepared us. So they were doing, um, they helped us prepare for interviews. They helped us prepare for what, for what to expect. So at that point, I had a little bit more of an idea of what to expect. Um, that maybe wouldn't be so embraced, but I don't think I was expecting quite what happened. And um, so outside of our colleagues in environmental epidemiology who were initially very skeptical, um, they eventually, you know, given, given the nature of our paper and, and its rigor and also our reputa good reputation in the field, they, they did, you know, were able to see the importance of it. But outside of them, the results were, made, were met with like great resistance. So, you know, headlines rang like, fluoride won't make you dumber, but the debate about its safety might. People said things like, you know, you'll lose more IQ points by watching Seth Rogen than you will from drinking fluoridated water. Um, wow. Uh, wow. Personal attacks, um, just people attacking 
Um, it wasn't an, it was an attack on IQ scores or statistical methodolo methodology. It was an attack on observational research. It wasn't anything they could they could say they they did, and most of it wasn't even true. So things like these results are driven by outliers was one headline. We showed the results in our paper without the outliers. You know, th things like this result is driven by lead. We showed the results with lead. So a lot of the things weren't even true, which was very disheartening. I thought people would at least read the paper before mm -hmm. critiquing on it. Um, but it was, it was, yeah, it was attacked in scientific and public arenas, mostly by industry funded groups, which was to be expected. Um, and actually what happened a couple months later in October is a letter was began circulated, signed by many people uh, in the health community saying that um, we're withholding our data from the public domain, which was extremely surprising since the data didn't belong to us. As I said over and over, it was such a lengthy process to access the data. Mm. I could even only access it on a secure server in my university, you know, on a VPN. We never ever would send anything by email. Of course not. It was always on a secure server. It didn't even belong to us. We sent everything back to the biobank. It's not ours to share. Mm. And we told people this, yet they still, they wrote to media, to newspapers, this group is withholding the data they have something to hide we put everything we possibly could on an open scientific framework for people to view every single analysis that we ran and including what the independent statistical consultant ran and it was you know attacking our integrity um, and just clinging to these beliefs that that fluoride was safe and effective when we pointed out there haven't been any studies in pregnancy showing it's safe and it was I think that was the most surprising to me um, that they weren't willing to just maybe for a second consider this new research which is really interesting right because this is all being done in the name of science and it's being done in yes. the name of public health and it's not as if you set out with a predetermined thought in your mind is it has like we want oh, to arrive at, at this outcome um and it was just you're just reporting on on what you found like yes it's it's really surprising to me that 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 happens because it makes me then sort of question science a little bit because here you are providing some evidence saying here's what we found and then the pushback and the resistance that you had that you faced like it sounds like a lot of um baseless claims and ad hominem attacks and things so has anyone then gone and done further study to refute your claims has that been done so i mean i would hope that more research would just continue right like no one study can change policy and we never expected that um, we really just expected people to say, oh, this is interesting. Um, maybe we should look more into this. And that's mm -hmm. what the JAMA pediatric editors said. They, it was such a controversial study that they, they wrote an editorial accompanying the release of our study to say <sighs> their decision why to publish it. It was the first, one of the first times I think they've ever done that, in wow. addition to a podcast explaining I still remember where I was and I listened to that podcast of these JAMA pediatric editors explaining why they chose to publish it very prestigious doctors and they were saying 
And I think they had the right ideas. They said, you know, this is, we thought this was crazy. And then we read this study and we're like, well, maybe we should look into this more. And that's kind of all we said. We didn't say, you know, this calls for a moratorium on water fluoridation. We never said anything <laughs> like that. We said our, fine, our, our last sentence was, these findings indicate the possible need to reduce fluoride ingestion during pregnancy. That was as far as we we went, the possible need. And that's not outlandish, right? Like mm -hmm. we say that about so many things. We say to limit your fish consumption due to mercury occurring in large fish, right? right. We, say, we say to limit plastics, which is appropriate given chemicals hiding in plastics. We say to limit, you know, exposures to certain radiation, everything. We, you know, we say that. Mm -hmm. So to, to us, like when we were writing it and, and some... Like, I thought people might think well, you didn't go far enough, right? Like, that's what I thought, maybe. But we were attacked for even go, even just talking about that nine-month period. Um, and it was, you know, people said we couldn't make that claim because it was an observational study and we didn't drug women like a drug study, which to me is so <laughs> ludicrous because... We, if we dismissed all observational studies, we wouldn't know so many of the landmark studies in public health, like smoking with lung cancer, air pollution with cardiopulmonary disease, leukemia and asbestos. Like we didn't drug people with asbestos, right? Like, so it's just, it's, I think that part was one of the parts that was just so shocking that why would we ever drug pregnant women with a potential toxic chemical mm. to see to prove its safety um well that sort of study I, design probably wouldn't even yeah. get through the ethics committee like i would hope not i would <laughs> hope not um but that was a long way of saying that no no studies to date have refuted our our study right. um but several studies have confirmed it since confirmed. then so there's been there's been now two um, birth cohort studies out of Mexico City where salt is fluoridated at about the exact same level and the maternal urine is nearly identical to the urine in Canadian women. Mm. Uh, they've found almost an identical IQ drop. Mm. Um, and then a study has been shown with um, in a birth cohort study with ADHD symptoms, as well as a study in Canada showing increased rates of ADHD. Um, and, and, you know, we'd be, if, of course, if a study found different results, we would embrace that. We, of you know, course. no, not every study is going to find the exact same results. Even if you look at the lead, the lead research, not every single study finds an effect with lead. Some things are different and sociodemographic factors are different. There might be other toxic chemicals in that area. There's, right? That's why we need confirmatory replication studies. It's so important. Um, but there have been about 50 studies showing a relationship between higher fluoride and lower IQ. Um, and in, I don't know if, if you're following um, what's going on in the US, but the National Toxicology Program in 2020 conducted a systematic review on the impact of fluoride on neurodevelopmental outcomes. And their conclusion was that fluoride is presumed to be a cognitive developmental hazard to humans. Oh. Um, they identified our study in the Mexico City study as the most, the highest quality studies. Um, and they did call for more research in areas more consistent with water fluoridation. So in the one part per million range, the 0.7 to one, where there is less research there. 
Um, but yeah, it's, there's definitely been a lot of research, but nothing to, to support safety during that period. Why do you think there was so much controversy and censorship and sensitivity around this issue? Like, I'm not even sure if you want to sort of go down that path, but. Yeah. I mean, we've thought about that. Um, I think people, um, you know, are clinging to preconceived beliefs that, Mm -hmm. you know, back then fluoride is, is safe and effective. And it, it was, it was effective then. Um, But science evolves and Mm. new research shouldn't, should be able to be integrated into current beliefs. Um, so I think some people are clinging to, you know, fluoride was 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 said to be one of the major public health accomplishments of the 20th century, and that was huge. And and that's and saying looking into new evidence today doesn't doesn't take away from that because at the time that was true. Tooth decay was a massive issue, and and that was one of the things that helped to to bring the incidence of decay down, you know, but as we go on and we learn more, um, things, things evolve that that's happened with many things in science where things were said to be, you know, like hormone replacement therapy, for example, things that were said to be good. And then we realized, okay, maybe not. Um, a lot of things with fetal exposures, people thought the placenta was a barrier right? People couldn't believe that alcohol contributed to, to what they now refer to as FASD, as fetal alcohol spectrum. People were shocked. They, they didn't know. And then, you know, things evolve. So I think, you know, one interpretation could be that old habits die hard and the dental, the dental establishment is, you know, is kind of, I guess, slow to, to adapt to the realities of modern research. Mm. Um, but it's, it's confirmation bias, right? Like the tendency to ignore or, or debunk data that doesn't conform to what we believe. And that's kind of what I think is happening that it's, it's too foreign to people. Um, and that's not the way that science should be done. Right. It shouldn't be where, oh, we, we've identified something here that may or may not be a problem. Let's investigate it further to mm-hmm. find the answer. It shouldn't be met with uh, vehement opposition where yeah. it's sort of just, you know, too sensitive to talk about and therefore we're not going to pay attention to it. Because if there isn't an issue here it, with any topic, it, regardless of whether it's fluoride or, you know. Correct. Yeah. And whatever. We need to find the truth. Like- Yeah. I mean, we're okay for critiques on the study. Like I think, you know, improving science is, is great. If people want to find ways to improve, of course, our study limitations, if people want to find ways to improve those limitations, they want to take 24 hour urine samples as opposed to spot samples was a limitation. You want to get a bigger sample size, whatever you want to do. I think that's wonderful. But, you know, to say this, this study of limitations, let's, let's, let's do another study. Like, that would have been fine. Um, but to, to say that this study has been debunked, you know, if people said things like that, or this pseudoscience, like to say things like that is just, is just completely dismissing good quality research. And it has been referred to good quality research by 
the National Toxicology Program and other major organizations. So, I mean, to be published in a top journal, it has to be. Um, it wasn't a charitable case that they took our paper. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like it was um, quite a ordeal yeah. to have to go through dotting all those I's and crossing all those T's and making sure that you did everything you possibly could to make sure that there was nothing that could be faulted. So yeah, yeah. I think it's it was quite a process. You're right. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, as I mentioned earlier, that fluoride does predominantly work topically. So we're, you know, we never advocated to give up fluoride at all. We're really talking about ingestion during the prenatal period, as I said earlier, mm. where, and if people want to use fluoride, there are, you know, appropriate ways to use it and to put it on a toothbrush, to expel afterwards properly. Um, and, and then you can get that, that therapeutic effect from fluoride in a topical source. Yeah. Cause I guess yeah. once it's in the water supply, it's hard to control the dose because you may be getting it from other sources, from Correct. toothpaste, from when you go to your dentist and they put um, fluorid fluoridated paste on your teeth, and then you're also yeah. getting it in your water supply. All of a sudden, yeah. it's very hard to know ex precisely how much you've been exposed to. Yeah. I think that's such a good point and one that we've spoken about a lot because it is an uncontrol uncontrolled dose. So pound per pound, you know, fetal fetuses as well as infants might be consuming much more than an adult, right? So if you think about babies who are being fed formula reconstituted with fluoridated tap water, they're actually exceeding the tolerable upper limit um, because of their small size and how much they might be having in those baby bottles. So I think it's exactly right. It's an uncontrolled dose. And we don't know if people are getting it from other sources because there can be fluoride found in pesticides. As I mentioned, there's fluoride found in tea. It's also found in grapes. Um, mm. So there are in deboned chicken is also. So it is hard to control and we don't know how much people are are actually ingesting. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about when you don't know how much of a certain thing is is really going into your system when there are potential risks involved. And th like there's risks with everything in life, you know. You right. Like there's probably 20 different things in water that we probably don't want circulating throughout our blood supply. But this um, is a bit different because it's purposely added. It's purposely so it's not added. like, right. So it's not like something that you're right, that there are things in our water supply that we might want to get a filter to remove, but this is something that is being purposely added in. And um, it's something that's not occurring in majority of Western countries. And so um, it's not the case that everybody has to have it. Yeah. It, and this is a, a topic that's been hotly discussed and, and debated yeah. for many, many years. So like, where do you see this sort of topic and field of research heading? Like, are there a lot of research gaps that still need to be addressed? Um, you know, what future research needs to be done to sort of give us a better indication of what the true benefits and risks are? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, it's important to note, right, again, that our work was really focusing on the prenatal period and pregnant women and infants, 
So it could be that other work is looking at other vulnerable populations. Right. That might be something that happens, like we mentioned, with th women with thyroid deficiencies. Mm. But currently, there is a lawsuit underway um, from by the Fluoride Action Network against the EPA that fluoride right. is perceived to be a um, a risk for human develop neurodevelopment. <coughs> they are relying, they are waiting for more research to come out. So one of the things they were, they were waiting to see was um, if other cohort studies were going to be done. Um, they were waiting for the National Toxicology Program report, the one I mentioned earlier, that's still receiving feedback from, from um, National Academy of Sciences. So I think there's going to be more research because there are so many burning questions and there are people waiting, waiting to hear um, what the final verdict is. Uh, so I think there will have to be more replication studies in vulnerable populations, you know, pregnant women, infants, probably across more countries. So maybe in the United States, um, you know, our study was in Canada and I mentioned there were a few studies in Mexico. Um, but, you know, while we wait for more research, um, the precautionary principle, which, you know, when, which is when think we're unsure, evidence is unclear, we, we act on the side of caution, it would advise that preventative measures be taken to minimize potential for harm. So that might mean pregnant women reducing their ingestion while, while we wait for, for more research to be underway to to kind of advise policy um, so i would hope that that more research will be done you know our lab is looking at thyroid as i mentioned as well as fluoride found in tooth dentin so the tooth is an optimal biomarker because it's able to give a measure of cumulative exposure over the prenatal period distinct from the postnatal period so that will be a really important biomarker um, that will that will be able to answer some some address some of the limitations in our study. Um, but I think you know when we're talking about children's brains, mm. like we should always be looking at the safety of things that we force onto onto people, right? Like anything that's that's forced that you don't have a choice whether to consume or not should always go through safety. And I'm not, that's not just fluoride, that's anything. Um, and so I think it's, it's so important. And, you know, I'm obviously passionate about children's brains as a developmental neuropsychologist and, and I, I'm big into prevention research. So anything that can prevent a, a neurodevelopmental disorder, um, I think it needs to be taken, taken seriously and, and try to do as much as we can to investigate that things are as safe as possible. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the thing with this is with kids or children is that they don't have the capacity to make those decisions for themselves. They're not an adult. They can't weigh up the pros and cons of something and say, oh, yeah, sure, I'm going to participate in this. They're really relying on their parents to do the best thing for them. So I think... You know, when when research like yours is met with such opposition, um, what that then does, just say, you know, there was so much opposition that, 
you were like, oh, I'm not going to do any more of this research. It's too hard. I'm just going to, you know, go and do research another field. Um, you know, what that does. Part of me felt that way. <laughs> yeah. So I you, said you part were, of me felt that way. <laughs> you were apprehensive. Yeah. To, yeah. Like I, I yeah. totally understand that because no one likes yeah. copying that sort of heat. Um, so, no. you know, good on you for, for standing your ground and investigating that further. But the reason why that's so important is so that all the cards can eventually be put onto the table. A pregnant mother can be given the information and they can weigh up the yeah. evidence for and against for themselves and ultimately make their yeah. own decision because that's, yes. that's what a democracy is. And yes. it's not about yeah. turning a blind eye to things that don't suit um, your the agenda. agenda or whatever. Yeah. And then just pretending that everything's okay. And then, you know, 50 years down the track, we actually find out that, oh, maybe we really should have paid a bit more attention to that at the time. And, you know, we pay, we paid a price with things like that, like mm. thalonamide, yeah. right? Like, I don't know if you know about what happened in, in Canada with that. And we said, we thought it was safe and pregnant women took it. And then they had babies born with major physical abnormalities, missing limbs. So, I mean, we, we've done that before. Um, we can't afford to do things like that and just you know, assume things are safe until proven otherwise. Yeah, exactly right. And I think what the work that you're doing and your team's doing is very important, regardless of what evidence you find, because maybe you find that it doesn't have an effect on the thyroid, right? Right. And we go, okay, For awesome. Sure. Well, we don't need to worry about that anymore. So now we can focus on researching the things that actually do affect 100%. health negatively, right? So 100%. If we don't find an effect, that's great. And it's so mm. important for people to know. And, and that's happened with many chemicals and not just fluoride. Like, you know, we, people find null effects all the time. And, and that's, that's important. Yeah, 100%. I think but it's so true that, you know, to enable women to make informed decisions about their health is, is one of the things that got me into this field. Because I, you know, as a pregnant, I didn't feel I was able to make an informed decision. Um, and, and so that's something I'm very passionate about. It's actually what I'm pursuing my doctoral research on is in knowledge translation, um, and, and seeing what, what women, pregnant women and parents know and, and what they prefer. Um, and, you know, parent policymakers and health regulatory officials to ensure that things are safe. So it's, it's something that things like this, you know, need to be able to, to get to people who do make those decisions, because as citizens, that's who we rely on. Um, and to be able to get that information from them to, to the public is something that I think is, is super important. Yeah, I, I think it's important. It's really important. Uh, Rivka, I just want to ask you as we're heading towards the end of the hour, is there anything that you think we need to discuss or any important points that are at the front of your mind that we may have missed or anything close to your heart that you wanted to comment on before we finish up today? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we had such good conversations and I, I do think that we've covered most of it. Um, I guess, you know, I think it's important to just, to just know that, um, I think to understand, you know, 
why many questions about the safety of water fluoridation, you know, haven't been addressed is could be because, you know, there's deep social aspects to what people believe. And just to, to let people to know that, you know, where we're coming from is that science is a process that just involves us adjusting our way of thinking as, as new evidence emerges. And just at a minimum, um, what we're hoping is that new scientific findings be used to revisit old guidelines or to use to be re revisit old policies. And um, just in order to, as, as I mentioned before, ensure the optimal health of fetal brain development. And of course, there are so many things in the environment you know, as an environmental health researcher that the fetus is exposed to. Fluoride's just one of a huge host of, of things. And I'm not saying that, not pointing fingers. I never was somebody who pointed fingers at fluoride at all. You know, I'm, I'm someone that recognizes the whole picture here, but the cumulative burden is enormous. And I think as, as somebody who I mentioned is passionate about, about the, the children's brains, it's something that, I think is just important to continue um, ensuring that children get the best, most optimal health as their brains are developing. Absolutely right. Spot on. I agree with you there. They only get one shot. They only get one shot. Yeah. And as you mentioned, some things are irreversible, right? So it's, yeah. Yeah. It's important. Um, so yeah. Keep me updated with the research okay. <laughs> that you're doing on the thyroid because I think that's a really interesting area. Um, do you know when that research will be published? Are we talking years yeah. down the track? or it's No, not years. I'm not the lead researcher on that. I'm part right. of the team. There's a, new, there's a new student who's taking the lead. Um, but the data has been, is being looked at right now. So I, I don't anticipate it will be much longer. Other studies that are coming out are a study on fluoride and birth outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, we also did, uh, in the pipeline is a study on serial IQ testing. So IQ testing at three time points with fluoride exposure. So that will be coming out soon. Um, as well as a study in Mexico city, um, another study on, um, fluoride exposure and psychological outcomes, also IQ outcomes, um, coming out as well. So, so there are studies in the pipeline that are, that are coming that I know of. I'm sure there are more, um, but hopefully the thyroid one won't, won't be too, it won't be years and years, <laughs> but we do go, we are very, very careful with our scientific process and it undergoes major, um, scrutiny by, by people within our team, as well as, um, people in health Canada and other peer reviewers that, that do look at it. Fantastic. Look, I really yeah. appreciate you coming on today and I appreciate you doing the work that you've done and having the tenacity to keep going with <laughs> this research because it's never easy when situations like this arise um, yeah. and you get some pushback with things and then you get attacked and whatever. So yeah, more power to you and the world would be a better place if we had you know, more strong women like yourself. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> no, it's, that's just, just telling it how it is or how I see it. Look, the other, the other thing is, um, would it be okay for me in the show notes to post up the papers that you've um, oh, of course. been a part of yeah. so people can read those? 
Yeah, of course. And I can give you the link to our open science framework. As I mentioned, we have lots of, I mean, I don't know how many data nerds there are who are listening, but <laughs> <laughs> you can go ahead and, and look through that as yeah, well. Yeah, fantastic. No, I'll, I'll do that. I'll put that up in the show notes for people to get access to. Rivka, yeah, thank you so much. Of, Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I was going to say the studies are open access, so it's no problem. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to me today about this topic. Um, it's been yeah, really nice to actually connect with you and, and discuss things with you. And uh, was- I know you're probably very busy with a, a lot of the <laughs> research and things that you're doing. So for you to take that time out of your day and, and to come and speak to me means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.